This is the Elite Game Developers Podcast, a podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. Today I talk with Nicolina Sidar, the co-founder and CEO of Unicorn Pirates, a mobile game studio that values a diverse culture of making great games for the underserved markets. Nicolina shares her journey into the game industry, how she found her company, and what are the ways that all of us can support and improve diversity in the game industry. Hi, Nicolina. Great to have you on the show. Hi, Joachim. Great to hear from you and thank you for inviting me. Great. Thanks for coming over. And uh, I'll kick it off with a question on how did you make your way into the game industry? Well, my way was a little bit Long and windy, let's put it that way. I mean, I'm not your typical gaming industry person. And I entered the industry in the age of 39. Not for the lack of trying. I've been trying for a long time, but it was just not a possibility for me. And I moved to Finland about 12 years ago. And since then, I was literally trying like almost every gaming company in Finland. I didn't even get no's. (laughs) It was that bad. But uh, I was building my career tech. I was building my career working for Nokia. I was building project management and QA. And I became really, really good at it. I was even nominated to be tester of the year in Finland and things like that. Then I applied to Rovio during early days. I think it was like 2011, 2012. And I got my chance there first as a QA manager. And that was basically my entry into the gaming industry about seven years ago. Things like that. Wow. And when I went in, I was like, nobody's getting me out of here. Like, now I'm in. <laughs> I'm staying. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. What was kind of like the drive to get into the games? Were you a big gamer when you were growing up and stuff like that? Yeah. I mean, you know, I grew up in communism. So it's a little bit, again, different stories. You know, I was always interested in it, what I could get to see as a kid. But it was impossible, you know. So where are you going to buy a computer in the 1980s? Croatia, this was then Yugoslavia, you know, Socialist Federative Republic of Yugoslavia. So actually I had my cousins smuggling ZX Spectrum and PCs from abroad and resembling it so we could play. So it was crazy stuff. Like I had people literally smuggling me, smuggling me like these small handheld games and it's just play what you can, you know, it was crazy. So then my grandparents smuggled some uh, first Amiga and things like that. So I was playing with my cousins. So, you know, it was literally underground gaming for kids. So I always loved it. I enjoyed it. I never knew I could make a career out of it. I didn't know then, but it was a big part of my childhood. And it was very important for me because I was a little bit of an odd kid, a little bit geekish, weird, and I always found this comfort and joy playing games. So it was, you know, this was kind of inspiration for it. And then when I left Croatia in the late 90s, then I realized, oh, there's an actually industry, the whole industry about games, and you can make a career out of it. And I was like, yeah, I'll try. Let's see what happens. So there was always a drive and passion for games, which kind of kept me pushing to keep on trying. Don't give up. Don't give up. Do you think that those kind of like days of growing in the East, like block mm-hmm. under communism, did you always grow with this kind of like, hey, things will change, things will get better? Has that been a driving force for you? Oh, yeah. I mean, I know it sounds a bit harsh, but it was like unhappy childhood. You know, we had lots of good stuff going on. And as a kid, you don't worry about politics. You know, you just accept what you have and, you know, try to have fun. 
But yeah, that was always kind of, you know, I always imagined that world is going to be a better place. I always want to travel. My parents took me traveling as much as they could. So I was quite lucky that I went like to Austria and Italy as a kid already. And I always thought, yeah, I'm going to be traveling, living different places. I never kind of was pessimistic or gloomy in that way. And, you know, there are moments when it was hard and we had our challenges growing up in a place like that. You know, for example, I couldn't get my hands on anything in Nintendo until like <laughs> this century. <laughs> but, you know, you do the best with what you have. And uh, there was lots of hope, always lots of hope and lots of joy. And um, I'm kind of glad that things did work out for better at the end. <laughs> you know, that my optimism as a kid was uh, justified. Nice. Let's go into this century and uh, talk about the moment that you're at Rovio. You were working alongside me as well for a while at Next Games. Yeah. You had the, the moment that you want to start your own company. How can you describe that moment and your thoughts there about starting your own company? Well, this kind of twofold question. I mean, I come from the family of entrepreneurs and I come from the family of closet female entrepreneurs. So I need to explain this a little bit because my grandparents had a business. They were quite actually well off. And again, they had their own challenges running a business in communism. But it was actually my grandma who ran the whole business. But because it wasn't acceptable to have a woman as a face, my granddad was the face of the business, but my grandma was the brains behind it. So she made all the decisions. She ran everything. My granddad was just being there like, you know. And it was a similar, my father had his own business, but basically it was my mom and me who were behind him, like helping him out because as I said, you know, he was in a transportation business. So it was also not really acceptable having women as the face of it. You know, it was a bit weird. So there's always a bit of this drive to, you know, have your own business and actually be not only behind it, but be a face of it as well. You can do it openly. And the second thing was also that, you know, when I was working in the gaming industry, I could really feel that some things are just not, there's something missing. There's like this big potential in the audiences, especially in mobile, that it's growing and growing and nobody's even looking at it. You know, yeah. everybody's looking at one point from one point of view, but you have all of these audiences being there who are like, like really keen to get more content tailored for them, but nobody's really addressing it. And here I particularly talk about women and LGBTQ community because said nothing is really tailored for them. And very often I saw that the games for women were actually games for children, but it's not the same thing. You know, games for women and games for children are two different things because they are a huge difference, but very often they're just boxed in the same content. And nobody even thinks about LGBTQ people. I don't think they're even part of any kind of bigger data analysis and surveys. It's actually really hard to get numbers about this market because nobody's even looking at it. So I always felt like, hey, there is this huge market that nobody's even like scratching the surface of it. And why is nobody looking at it? Why is nobody serving it? And it also felt like a drive that actually we really want to do something about it. I remember when I heard a pitch from you, that was early, uh, late last year. Yeah. We were having lunch and you described the company. I was so fascinated and so happy about the whole culture that you're building around the LGBTQ this kind of strong values and the diversity that you're bringing up there, so different and so needed in the industry. Can you talk about the companies, like the story there? Yeah, I mean, the whole driving idea about it is that, you know, 
we believe that you know you do need LGBT and women and non-binary creators to make the content for these player groups because you need this deeper understanding of the of the player base. And I just think that you need more, you know, women making games for women, LGBT people making games for LGBT people because they really have this deeper understanding of the need and even from some things on the surface because we can all get numbers, we can all get data, but numbers tell you one story, how to translate them into action in your game, in your feature. That's a different part of the, the equation. And it really helps to have you know, your target audience basically making games for themselves. And yeah. it's super important. And until now, this is completely ignored. Of course, I'm not saying that, you know, a white straight male person can make a good game for women, but I'm just saying there's not enough content creators and product decision makers who come from these groups and very often some very silly mistakes are made, opportunities are missed because these people are actually not participating enough in the creative and business process. Yeah, and it's a discussion around the creation of the game and everybody contributing to it. Yeah. Yeah. Can you describe the challenges that you've faced with building your company, Unicorn Pirates? Oh, man. Well, you know, I know that we have a limited time, but I could talk here until like um, late hours of the night about this. But uh, it's been many because we're doing something different because also the whole company structure started from why are we doing this? It wasn't like, okay, we have this one game we want to make and we are just doing everything about it. It's like, why are we doing this? We are here in the long run to build a long story. So that was really, really important for us. So yeah, we have maybe more challenges than your average gaming studio because you know we are doing things a bit differently. So I said, from the way, how we build a company, why we build the company this way. We're not focusing, our focus is not let's put one product out as soon as possible and then whatever happens afterwards. We are focusing on let's build a team based on values and create, you know, content for the years to come in the right way for the right audiences. So we had challenges, like first of all, you know, getting funding for us was exceptionally difficult. And, you know, we're still in this process. It's getting much better and we found the right partner for us, but it's been painful. And we got lots of, you know, tap on the shoulder. Oh, we are glad you're doing this, but we won't give you any money. Or most commonly, we're like, we would prefer to wait to see what comes out of it. So that was difficult. So building a company from zero to get some without money, it's insanely challenging or without any commitment of money. But also we had challenges even building a team because, you know, there is just not many women and LGBTQT people who are senior enough. We realized that these people are few and between. And uh, it was hard to actually start building the team that, you know, you have people who have the skill and have experience and are willing to work in the startup as well. So that's been, you know, it's much harder than when you're just going to say, hey, I need a coder or I need an artist. Then we realize, oh, there's another layer of the problem here. We actually need to educate these people. We need to actually bring these people in the industry as well. So we kind of build a company in a way that we have core of more senior people, but we have lots of junior people whom we are proactively training to get that experience, to become senior, to be able to work independently and, and grow. 
And we hope we're going to build a new generation that uh, it's going to be way more diverse than we have right now, that we are part of this solution. And of course, there's lots of misunderstanding as well, that uh, some people just don't understand what we're doing. There was lots of even, I wouldn't say rejection, but kind of like, I don't see the point in what you're doing. I heard people saying, I don't think there's a problem about diversity in Finland, in Finnish gaming industry. I was like, "Mm -hmm, there's no problem, but I can't find senior people. So like, I mean, that tells me there might be a bit of a problem. Yeah, our challenges are a bit, bit tougher. And also, you know, we, there's lots of foreigners we hire. We are very international. We have people from, I mean, I'm Croatian. My co-founder is Brazilian. We have people from Pakistan, from Italy, from Vietnam. And, you know, some Finnish organizations, government organizations look at us very weirdly. Because, like, why are you so weird? <laughs> They're really crazy diverse. We find incredible value in it, but it's been hard to understand. And sometimes I would say that even from the gaming industry, looked upon as, you know, younger sister that nobody really wanted, (laughs) you know, nobody wishes harm, but everybody's like, oh, it's them again, you know. Of course, not by everybody, but sometimes you have this bit of this feeling that maybe we're not even taking seriously as well, which is fine. Not everybody can relate to what we are doing, but we think that Mm. there is a need to have company like ours and I hope. There'll be more companies like ours in the future. But yeah, we, we had maybe more different challenges than the average gaming studio, but we are going through this and finding solutions as we go. And told me about this story when you were in Seattle and you met okay. this partner. It'd be great to hear all the details. Yeah. <laughs> wild trip. Yeah, I mean, this is something that we are super excited about, that we are partnering up with Eastside Games from Vancouver, which... We really love those guys. Now we look at them as our big brother, you know, way, because they have very similar values to us and ways of working. They're just, I would say, maybe a couple of years ahead of us in their commercial success. It's a very funny story how we met. I was speaking at a conference in Seattle last year and I was the last speaker of the day. The party started at 7. I was talking at 6.30 in the afternoon. I was like, yeah, great. Thanks, organizers. And they put me in a huge hall and there's an audience of like over 100 people, like And I had five people sitting there. So I was like, oh. And I really feel the pressure. You have to make eye contact with everybody. And it wasn't my best delivery because it was stressful. You know, I was like, okay, this is, you know, weird. But it ended up working well. I mean, uh, when my presentation was over, one of the people from the audience came to me and he introduced himself as producer from Inside Games. He's like, hey, I really like what you're saying. I really like what you're talking about your company. We're looking for partners who have similar values because you would like to work with more with the audiences that you are addressing, but we just feel that we need a more diverse team. And so you sound just exactly the kind of persons, kind of company that we would like to work with. But of course, we were all going separate ways. Then he said, hey, let's meet up tomorrow. Last day of the conference, I'll try to find you. And then the next last day of the conference, I was actually looking for Jim from his side again. So I was looking for him and I couldn't find him and I was leaving. I was just leaving the conference and I saw him in the corner of my eye. And then we actually spoke. And we spoke for about half an hour and I was like, oh, you know, this sounds really good. I, I heard about the game, Trail Park Boys, because it's, I love the game and I thought it's fantastic, but I didn't know much about the company. And I was like, they actually sound like a really uh, great company to work with. But then back to Finland, we were going through the organization and we had, you know, lots of challenges of our own. It's setting things up and running things. But they were like, hey, 
let's get in touch again. You know, it just comes at this nagging feeling. We should be in touch with these guys. So they ask us to send them a list of IPs we'd like to work with. And we had a workshop in our company. You know, I don't make these decisions. The whole team makes these decisions. So I was like, okay, let's all get together and make this list and everybody can contribute to this list. So we had over 50 IPs on the list. And we sent it to them and they replied back and they're like, yeah, guys, this is amazing. And we really like what you send over. And we had a call. And then they said, hey, there's actually really big IP that you would like it to work with. Are you interested? And yes, we are very interested. And from there on, the collaboration started. And we almost missed each other in Seattle. So it's kind of like, you know, if I wouldn't see Jim in the corner of my eye just leaving, I don't know if he would find each other again. But yes, yeah, since then we started to collaborate. We are working with a smaller project right now. So we also, uh, ESA Games also is actually going to become investor in us. And we are working together on this huge IP, which is going to be announced pretty soon. So follow Unicorn Pirates and ESA Games to hear the announcement. We are super excited about it. You can't see it. I'm smiling from ear to ear, even thinking about it. So, yeah, and it just proved to us, you know, there are, companies who understand us and the same they have similar values there's just not so many of them but when you find them you really have this feeling okay this is it this is the right partner we can do something amazing together mm. and for us it was also very important to see that if you have a project ours that you can actually be very successful because mm. they use an ip trailer park boys which is really an indie ip it's a tv series which is about a particular segment of canadian society but they're really passionate about it. They know everything about it. They love it. And they made fantastic financial success out of it. I mean, they grew the company to be over 100 people and be super profitable. And now they can actually reinvest in the other companies. So we, we, it was kind of confirmation for us as well. Yes, with this approach, you can actually go really far and build very, very healthy business and very healthy company without jeopardizing your values and ways of working. And I'm super happy that we met up, you know, and working together. Very inspirational story. How do you then see kind of like the whole game industry to approach and improve the ways of the diversity that's currently like, it's not changing enough, but what are the ways that you see that things could improve? I think... There is some open for because there is a lot of talk about it, you know, and if there's a conversation, first, let's recognize there is an issue. It's not enough of this. Don't try to swap it under the carpet. And there's lots of effort done in hiring more diverse uh, group of people. But then most of the companies stop the story there. But it's not only about hiring these people, but it's also about empowering them and giving the tools to grow and to develop and make decisions and become leaders as well become seniors and take more responsibilities. And I think we hire them with the hype, okay, now we hired, you know, we hired women, we hire LGBT people, but then you leave them basically on their own in a company, in a system, which is mostly, you know, cis white male driven. And I think that you need to give them more tools and kind of the story doesn't end there. Just, you know, you need to kind of reorganize your company in a way that there are literally equal opportunities for everybody to grow and to progress because there's also lots of this kind of, it even happened to me, people told me, do you really want to be a CEO? And it's difficult. I was like, yeah, no. Do you tell this to my male colleagues? You know, I mean, I, it's coming from the good place, not coming from the bad place, but I was like, come on, you know? 
And I think that's a little bit happening also in the work environment that there's kind of people like, oh, you know, we don't want to burden you with the projects or problems. Yes, please burden me because that's the way to learn. That's the way to progress. And women and non-binary people and LGBTQ population and we are all have different levels of ambition and some of us wants to be CEOs and C-level executives and product directors and product owners. Allow these people to grow and progress as well. Don't just hire them and leave them on their own. Give them tools, give them knowledge, give them skills to go to their careers, to grow as far as they want to grow. And I think that's a bit of a problem that they're still not there. And also, even if there's lots of goodwill, you know, it needs to go through all the layers of the company, especially in the bigger companies. It's not enough to just announce it. You really have to have everybody to the even junior level to really understand diversity and fully embrace it because otherwise it's not going to really work, especially not in the long term. How do you approach nurturing the company culture, the values at Unicorn Pirates? For us, this is really important. And this is the most important thing that we have as a company. And it's the biggest thing that runs the company. And we made this clear for everybody who joins the company, even through the interviewing process. It's said, you're not a traditional company. This is the primary value. And we are willing to hire people who might be less skilled, but they have the right mindset, the right values, because we have skills you can learn. Changing attitudes is much harder. So for us, this is super important. And we also, we don't leave people on their own. We do have a system of kind of that every, the people are really independent and everybody's aware of this nurturing. So people kind of do, they don't need management correction, let's put it that way, that the team itself is always making sure that the values are respected and that the, everybody understands them fully because they're fully embraced by everybody. And that makes our job in the leadership much easier because, you know, when a company is really living it from, you know, from the bottom up, then it's fully embraced automatically. But we always make sure, you know, we had to make some hard calls. Honestly, hire people, everything seems great. And then we realized that it's actually not a good fit culturally. And we had to make a hard call. So for me, this is the most difficult part of my job and I have to let somebody go. But I would rather let somebody go even if they're highly qualified. But if we see they don't really fit in this culture or, or which we have and our values or they don't respect them in the right way. So it's really kind of, you know, we try to protect it from every level. And we are very open about it. It's openly discussed. We have weekly meetings where we kind of especially the new people, it's always emphasized, hey, this is the value. Please make sure that you know that you are respected in every way and that you respect other people. And until now, it's been amazing. And people who work with us, you know, this is for me the biggest pride and joy when people say, hey, this is the best place I ever worked with, worked in. I feel, I feel that I really belong here. And then you're like, then I have a feeling, okay, I'm doing something right. This is working. And you, know, you really feel like, Whatever happens, you know, this is the important part of it. Yeah, it really gives you kind of like a purpose in like building this company. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there's lots of small things. I mean, I'm actually writing a small manual kind of like what you can do to make, for us, for example, starts from the contract. Like in a contract, for example, we say his, hers, theirs. We already have non-binary pronoun in the contract. So from the day one, you start with this, you know, we really, you know, this way, it is diversity is super important. And we always say we encourage the questions, 
because that's how they understand each other better, as long as they come from a respectful place. So people are not also afraid to talk about their religion or background or their partner. You know, it's beautiful to hear that people talk about their partners and nobody's judging you. Is it male, female or non-binary, you know? And it's always this nurturing of like, it's okay, you're perfectly accepted the way you are. And as long as you respect other people and this is important to you, it's great. And it's been working really, really good. Yeah. Going into your personal work there as the CEO, yeah. how much are you involved in actually making the games? And how do you see that kind of like for a small company CEO? I'm involved, honestly, I'm involved more than I should be, ideally. But we are still very small. But we say like we are a bit struggling with the funding and everybody has to wear multiple hats. And due to my background as well, you know, I do get involved. But my part is usually into getting the opportunities. So I'm the one who goes out, talks, you know, to the IP owners, other companies, publishers, and trying to get opportunities for the for a studio. And I also get involved in a way as a product owner because we don't have a product owner. I'm here to give the framework to the team. So I give them a product framework, but I let them fill in the rest. So I rather see myself as a facilitator to help them out than kind of controlling the creative process. And of course, because we work with publishers at the moment, you know, there are some deadlines and things that you have to respect. So there's some kind of parameters within which you need to work. But I try to leave the team to have as much creative freedom as possible. And we will be looking to hire a product person as well to actually, that I don't have to do it anymore. I like doing it, but I think as we grow, it's becoming lots of work for me. But I think it's also that teams should be more independent without having, you know, sea level people being meddling in their daily, daily things. And of course, I do lots of training for the teams as well because I have a background in production and live ops in QA. So I try to train the team as much as possible as well, kind of transfer the skills to them so they can work also with less and less input. But till now, this is, this is more or less it. Mm. What is your typical day like? When do you get to work and when do you get out of work and how do you wind down after your yeah. work day? Well... I'm not a morning riser, so I wake up between 8 and 9 a.m., depending on the evening before, like how heavy was the workload. And I have two dogs, and I go to the nature for like 40 minutes or an hour, and it really helps me ground for the day, you know, kind of get into this really right state of mind. And I'm usually at work around 11, between 10, 13, 11. And, uh, you know, while I'm going to work, I already focus, okay, what needs to be done today? What are the priorities? Check uh, also on Slack. If Somebody needs anything. And usually start my day by tackling the most burning, most important thing that's outstanding. And I always try to find some time to talk to people as well. I'm still like a jokester in the company. So, you know, I'm the person who go around and make stupid jokes. (laughs) (laughs) Annoy people by the work. I'm there until about, depending on the day, uh, usually until like five or six o'clock in the afternoon. Then I go home, but very often I would continue working because our partners are in Canada, they're in a different time zone. So sometimes, you know, I'll take a break when I come home, take the dogs out, take a bit of a break, and then have another hour or two working between eight o'clock and 10 o'clock in the evening. And so also sometimes having a call with the, with the partners and things like that. So this is more or less a typical day. Of course, there are exceptions, but this is how it works. For me, to wind down, well, I play console games to wind down. <laughs> 
because then I don't have to think about the business. I just like go and. Yeah. Uh, but also, you know, uh, like uh, just having a discussion with my partner or reading something that is not work-related, like going out with the dogs kind of, it does help break the, you know, working routine and reset the brain a little bit. Where are you kind of like wanting yourself to develop at the moment as an entrepreneur, a CEO? Yeah, well, unfortunately, there's no school of, of CEOs. When I became an entrepreneur, at the beginning, it was pretty tough. I had a bit of imposter syndrome because I really felt like, why am I? Oh, my God, you know, everybody knows what they're doing. I, I don't have a clue. But then when you scratch the surface, I realized most of the CEOs actually don't know what they're doing because it's like everybody just trying to get by. So, you know, I learned already a lot, but there are things that I would really like to learn more is about actually legal aspect of it. Because that has been, especially when you work with different countries, you know, we are in Finland and then we have stakeholders in Canada, UK, and, you know, without lawyers, you are completely confused. So I would really like to learn more about that to kind of get more confident in that part of the business. But it's also about, you know, I'm really looking forward to also learning from Eastside Games about how to scale up the company in a healthy way. Because I've been seeing it being scaled up in Rovio and Next Games. And, you know, we work in Next Games. And I think, honestly, mistakes were made in both companies. And it's hard. And I would like to really learn to do it in a really organic, healthy way. So the business doesn't really suffer, but we can still grow. And that's something that I'm really looking forward to kind of... Because now I know what not to do, but it would be good to hear what to do, you know, because we have this like success story now. So like, okay, so can I say, hey guys, how did you do that? How did you grow from 20 to 150? And, you know, everything works great. And that's definitely something that's on the list of the things to kind of really dive deep and get a bit of a template how this could work for us as well. Yeah, those are really good ones. Following how Eastside Games has grown now, over 100 people and they're really focused on what they want to do on their own ways. That's a cool aspect. When you've been working as an entrepreneur now, do you recall any very scary situations? And like, how did you deal with those? Yeah, there have been many, actually. I would say we are always on the edge, <laughs> living on the edge of the knife. So yeah, there have been a couple of situations where we were like, you know, we always had a situation where we were like out of money and we didn't even have a clue where we're we going to get money. And, you know, that was pretty scary because I realized, okay, we might just lose everything right now in this moment. But it worked out. There were also moments, you know, where we were, you know, let's say mistreated uh, or we've been kind of even threatened in a way. And these were very uncomfortable as well that somebody's literally threatening your existence because you don't fit in their idea how things should work. So there have been scary moments. For me, it's stressful. It's definitely stressful. Nobody wants to go through this. But I always go from the point of view, it's like, do your best. You know, if you need help, ask for help. Uh, somebody who can actually help you understand and resolve the situation. And, you know, in a worst case scenario, you know, you can always say, hey, I tried. I did my best. I couldn't make it work. Let's move on. It's not the end of the world. And kind of takes over that pressure. I mean, that, you know, because like in the worst case scenario, well, we have to close the company. Everybody learned and grew in this company. So if this is the, you know, worst case scenario, 
we'll all go separate ways with more skills, with more knowledge, with more experience. It's not what we want, but if it happens, it happens. And I think when you make peace with that possibility, then it's easier. And I always think it's much easier to face your fear and face the consequences of it. Then it's kind of easier to go through it. Um, you know, and it's easier to try to think about situation from the calm mind. Because if you start try to resolve the bad situations from the place of panic and fear, the solutions are usually not really good. So kind of calming yourself down and saying, okay, what can we do constructively? Then the solutions happen. And that happened to us as well. And I'm not saying that, you know, we are still very early company. I don't, I can't predict the future. I can't tell what's going to happen. But just mm-hmm. kind of having this confidence that, uh, you know, you always do your best and you know, come from the calm place and from the love for what you do and try to be constructive. You will be able to get at least some kind of solution. And so sometimes solutions are not elegant and sometimes they're not what you ideally want. But I also believe that for every situation, there is usually a solution. Yeah, and you learn from everything there. Yes, you grow from every experience like that. You always grow professionally and personally as well. When are you the happiest? Well, honestly, you know, when I walk around the office and I hear the people laughing, you know, I'm so happy. I'm so happy. I can see you really feel the joy and lightness. And then like, yeah, I'm doing something right. You know, people are loving their work and that's absolutely amazing, you know, like, and you could have felt, oh, you know, it came from my head and it's here and people are really living it. For me as a professional, it just gives me tremendous joy, you know, that uh, I was like, yes, this is why I'm doing this. And, uh, you know, this is probably the profession, the happiest place for me. Personally, you know, I like to be on, in the sea on the vacation swimming. <laughs> Then it's like, you know, it's a different story, but it's a professional of just hearing this and feeling this positive energy of joy that everybody is so joyous working in Unicorn Pirate and everybody gets along. It's amazing. Yeah. Congrats for all the success so far with building this kind of cool company. Thank you. So amazing. Thank you so much. Thanks. Let's go to the final questions. What is your favorite book and why? I would say probably two books that I can pick. One of them is by the founder of Zappos, Delivering Happiness. I really like that book because also gave me, first it gave me confirmation that I'm not crazy. There are companies like that that exist and thrive. Secondly, because it's also a little bit like a manual. Actually, it gives you tools how to do things, you know, even if you can't really use everything from the book in your company, it gives you idea, ideas how to do it which is great. And for me personally, it was very important because it shows that being an entrepreneur, it's not like a hockey stick. There are peaks and valleys that you can go really low and really high and uh, everybody struggles and it's perfectly normal part of the journey. So it was really kind of, for me, it was this really, you kind of get the inside world because you always, when you go to conferences, when you read articles, you always just hear about these amazing successes. Nobody really talks that much about the failures and the lows, you know, they're there, but it's almost like a shame talking about them. So this is the first book when you really say, okay, they went through lots of problems and they had to struggle a lot and they lost lots of money and they made lots of money. And it was really, really eye-opening for me. And I still like to read it sometimes, you know, I said like kind of manual for some things, how to do. And another one, which I really like is called, I have it here, it's called 
Be More Pirate. And it's a weird little book that I found, and it actually brings the parallel between pirates and the modern companies. And it's great little book with also lots of great ideas, actually how to build flat, diverse company and pulls a lot from the world of pirates. And, you know, we're called unicorn pirates. So, of course, we have to look up to the pirates. But, you know, it scratches the surface that besides, you know, eye patches and parrots on the shoulder, they're the first democracy and where women and people of color had the right to vote and they had a social security system and things like that, which is really mind-blowing. So I love this book, actually, a lot. And it's really, really good book that gives you lots of ideas how to resolve practically some things at work as well, or when you build, trying to build company like ours. So I recommend them to everybody who is looking into building, even if you don't want to build holacracy, but if you want to build more diverse, flat structure where empower teams, these books are pretty good tools to help you out. What is the biggest lesson learned at being a game startup founder? <laughs> I would say two of them. First, Listen to your intuition. Every time when I didn't listen to my intuition, I made a mistake. Listen to yourself, your experience. Listen to your intuition. Uh, it's telling you something. And it's really important because you all have it. Because there's no template answer for everything that's going to happen to you. Everybody's story is unique. And second is know your boundaries. Because, you know, me and my co-founder, we both basically went straight to the burnout because trying to do too much gave ourselves too much and there was no boundaries. You're not a bad leader or bad manager if you have your boundaries. We all have to sleep and eat and replenish. And if you burn out, you are of no service to your team or to your company. So it's also set up your boundaries in a way that you do have this time for yourself where you can actually really take time to also to grow and take time to re-energize um, because very often we are just going straight in, you know, not 100%, but 300%. And you kind of work, 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 worry, worry, worry. And in the long term, nobody can run with this for too long. So I think it's very healthy that from the start, that, you know, of course, it's going to be hard work and you have to give a lot, but also know, learn to recognize the signs and it's time to stop and breathe and focus on something else. And then you come back refreshed and feeling better and have more to give. So I'd say probably two most important lessons as an entrepreneur that I learned. What keeps you up at night? <laughs> Besides barking dogs. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would say these days it's probably fear of fear, probably finances, you know, worry about finances. Because we are growing quite a lot. We have now over 15 people. We have very important projects and we are still trying to put the whole puzzle together with the team, with finances, with the project. So it's still in that process. So you always try to feel like, okay, do I have enough of this to make this happen? So that still worries me a lot because like we didn't have a traditional route where we raised a couple of million and building the company. We're literally building the company as we go. So yeah, that still brings me worried to my mind. And I hope that soon enough that this part of the puzzle is also going to be complete, you know, that we don't have to worry about it and that we can focus more on building a healthy company and uh, great products. But as I said, at this stage, it's probably the biggest worry I have. Finance is always tricky at yeah. the early stage. 
Yeah, yeah. And I said, especially when you don't have this lump sum of money, but it's coming like from different directions in the smaller lumps. It's always a bit of like, you know, you have products, you have teams working and you need more people. So it's always kind of how to put it together in a way that you don't bite too much too soon, but in the same time, have enough people to do the product without stretching them too thin. So it's a bit of a puzzle and it's always kind of, it takes some skill and it takes some thinking to make sure that we make the right decisions in that way, building the company. And of course, I think that's why it's a bit of extra concerns about finances right now. But as I said, hopefully it's going to be, it's going to sit in the place as well soon enough. Yeah. Final question. What do you see happening to the company in the next five years around the mission and the plan? You know, my ideal scenario, so our scenario as a company, what we would like to do, we would like to build first, you know, games which are based on the big IPs, international IPs, who are each are talking to the, our target audiences. But we also have in the pipeline our own IPs that are kind of in this stage, you know, concepts of mobile products. So that's just something we would like to do as a second stage when we already have kind of a good, solid base. And ideally, we would also, you know, like to help other companies like ours to thrive as well. So we see ourselves as, you know, putting more, ideally we'd like to put two to four games out per year, but also act as a kind of support system for the other entrepreneurs similar to us and companies like ours. Maybe as a publisher, maybe as angel investors, maybe as a combination of something like that. But this is definitely down the pipeline that we want to not, like, not be the only unicorn. We want to make more unicorns like us, <laughs> meaning like not $1 billion company. Well, why not? But being in a way diverse and speaking to these audiences, which we believe are underserved. So that's kind of like a long-term plan for us. That's awesome. To end it up, where can people find more about the company? We have a web page, which is pretty bare at the moment. So it's unicornpirates.studio. But you can also follow us on social media, which is the easiest way to find out because it's constantly updated. We post stuff a lot on our Facebook channel, Unicorn Pirate Studio, on the Twitter as well. Uh, we have a cool Instagram account where you can see more from inside of the office what's going on and people who work uh, with us and well, how do they feel about everything. And we also actually starting the YouTube channel. So there will be some videos there soon. I think they're posting something for the first YouTube video next week. So uh, if you want to see a little bit more... <laughs> I'm going to uh, go check it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, please do. Please do. So we are very active on social media and you're more welcome to join. We're also having a newsletter. So you can subscribe yeah. on our social media as well. They get once per month a newsletter, which kind of gives you a bit of a summary of what have you been up to the previous month. Yeah, I promise we will not spend. Good. Thanks a lot, Nicolina. No problems. Thank you so much, Joachim, for taking time to talk to me. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Before you move on, please remember to follow or subscribe to our show so that you'll get notified when next week's episode is live. See you next week. Bye-bye.